like having to, um, I might have to feel the need to go to the bathroom in the middle of recording. <laughs> I've, I've started doing a two hour commute. Um, you know, previously I lived in Enfield and I recently moved to, um, to Rhode Island. And uh, the two hour commute uh, really brings to mind just like, you know, how am I doing as far as going to the bathroom is concerned? So I have like, I've got Dunkin' Donuts sort of mapped out in different locations. Like, yeah. oh, okay, well, I could always stop and get a coffee and, you know, use their bathroom. But yeah. I, um, it's almost unreasonable the amount of um, concern or care I put into me just using the restroom before I start. Because if I'm doing, if I'm like having a guest on, it's going to be like at least an hour ish of us talking to each other. Right. And, you know, I, I sit in a classroom for like an hour 20 and like, and I go right before the class starts and then an hour 20 passes and I'm like, yeah, I totally need to go now. So I'm always, I just, I feel this paranoia. Like I'm totally going to yeah, like have, have to go in the middle right. of it, right. even though it it hasn't really happened yet. Right. Right. Is it, is it time to see a urologist? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's just get that right out. The, which is odd. I mean, let's, okay, let's, let's get into the nasty personal stuff. Um, so I did, uh, there's, um, there's a test that, uh, there's a blood test that every man should, should take, right? And, and particularly after you get past a certain age, right? After you, you hit your forties, um, I'm, uh, just turned 52. Um, so my doctor sent me off and, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a blood test called PSA, which is, you know, public service announcement, public service <laughs> announcement. Right. That's, and that's what I ordinarily thought of it. Uh, it is prostate specific, uh, antigen. I think okay. it is. And so it basically, all it does is it measures your blood to find this particular level. Right. Mm-hmm. And the level is supposed to be down like two or three and maybe it goes up a little bit as you get, as you get older. Uh, and mine was, uh, a little high, right? So mine was closer to 10. And so um, the doctor said, all right, we'll send you off for another blood test in a little while and we'll check. And the next one came back and it was still pretty much the same thing. So I went to a urologist and said, all right, well, um, you know, ordinarily it's a lot higher before we tar- start to do this stuff. But let's let's rule out some of the some of the circumstances. So basically, uh, long story short, um, I ended up having uh, a biopsy done on my uh, prostate. And again, we'll jump to the ending. I'm fine. <laughs> All right. So had a good ending. It's good news. It's good. Yes, it's good news. Um, I'm glad I went through the test to make sure that everything is all hunky-dory. Yeah. Um, but I will say that after having the biopsy, I have more problems having to, like, go to the bathroom. So, like, an hour and 20 minutes of – Yeah, because you have a, you got a needle stuck in your <laughs> – Quite a few. I imagine yeah. that can disrupt the, the I imagine, yeah, operations. I'm, I, I'm hoping that it's going to go back to normal. It's been a few months, so uh, so here's hoping. But I just imagine the thing looks like, you know, the high-scoring domino. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyways. I mean, luckily, I'm, I think I'm at an age where I don't, I don't have to worry about um, anything in the field of urology yet. Right. So, I mean, I suppose the, the difference between, like, having the – necessity to have to go to the bathroom like directly before and after like attending a class sure and during a podcast and the, the lack of necessity during a podcast is like maybe i'm just really bored during the class and <laughs> i'm just sitting there like yeah but of course like if i'm doing a podcast i'm talking to someone i'm really engaged for an hour an hour and a half or something like that right 
Right. Well, I think it's an expression of um, consideration as well, right? Where you're, you know, you're you're sitting here and you're talking to somebody for a certain amount of time, and yet there's the formality uh, and the technical issues that go along with setting up the podcast and making sure that everything goes um, smoothly the way that it should. <clears throat> but there's also the sort of like, okay, I want to give this person my undivided attention for an hour or even longer um, as necessary, and so thinking forward ahead of that being conscious about it. Um, I think it says an awful lot about you as um, somebody who's interested in making sure that things go right. Yeah, there's um, a whole lot. Well, as you saw when when I met you at your office, um, I'm carrying a lot of things here because, like, uh, I commute here and it's not as bad as your drive. Right. You know, it's like an hour, maybe 45 minutes. Good, uh, good. And, but because of that, you know, I'm car- I just, I need to carry all the things based on, like, my itinerary for for the day it's like oh i have to go to this building and then sure there's like a a buffer of like an hour and a half maybe two hours between that and like the next thing but like based on how the buildings are mapped out the itinerary makes sense for me to like just bring all the things with me right because like say i have a guitar class that starts at one o'clock right right and it's it's reasonably close to the library where we are now Right. And so I feel weird just carrying a guitar around. And also I'd rather not have to because it's, you know, it's another, it's not. It's awkward. It's not like I'm carrying an entire keyboard set. Sure. But it's, it's still like a big thing I have to lug around. Right. And I don't, I also don't want to leave in my car because it's pretty cold out right now. Yes. And so I'm like, yeah, the only, literally the only reasonable thing to do is carry the guitar with me um, to, to hear. And then go to my guitar class afterward, right? And right, um, because I'm not actually I'm not actually a hard student. I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed like a locker in hard school. Yeah, we should we should look into that. Um, for those of you listening at home, there is actually a guitar in this room. Uh, in addition to what I would have to say is about forty five pounds worth of equipment. Yeah. <laughs> um. So and it's divided up into so we've got um. Oh, that might actually be your lunch. Yeah, that's um, that. That yeah, so here's the rundown. Right. I have my, like, just backpack right. that, I keep, that I keep, like, like notebooks, folders, um, uh, emergency equipment, right. such as everyone needs a full-size stapler with them at all times. It adds some weight, but <laughs> I can't disagree with that. And, like, uh, first aid kit, sure. uh, you know, like, lots of pens and uh, whatnot. And then, so that's my backpack. Right. And then there's... My computer bag, right? Uh, this this right here, that's which yeah. carries like my computer, right? Plus the um, ap- appropriate accessories to that to that machine, along with like just other stuff. Sure. Like um, so like there's a computer in there, like a folder of some paper, some papers, um, a couple of just uh, right. books, right? Um, the charger brick thing that it's for for my computer also adds quite a bit of weight. Oh yeah, it yeah. does, especially because um. So the one that originally came with my machine was like real. There's only one brick on it, right? And it's like you, it would. It's totally manageable. Yeah. But I keep that one at home because I bought another one. Um, my computer is a Microsoft Surface Book Two. Oh, okay. And I got the Surface Dock. Okay. And an accessory that acts as a charger, but also like expands ports, sure. um, additional ports, including like. Uh, I think like might be like upwards of four USB right uh, it ports. Turns it more into yeah. a laptop than it does just yeah. simply a, a tablet. It even even has like an Ethernet port 
And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but that thing has, so there's the brick that like charges the computer, but also the brick that houses the ports. Oh. And so it's really putting it in my bag. It's just, it bulks it up. Yeah. Which also makes it difficult to like shove other things in these little pockets in front. Right. Like, because it's like, bulged out. Like say, my, like uh, my precision mouse. Right. And like um, a mouse pad. Right. And other things like I just keep a couple of bottles of like hand sanitizer or uh, what have you. It's what, whatever you whatever you really need. <laughs> or like a case for my glasses that right. includes um, like some lens cleaner and sure. m- microfiber cloths and stuff. Sure. So. And at, at this point, so now we've covered uh, what any commuting student would need, right? So there's a typical backpack that has your books and your notebooks and whatnot. There's another bag for your computer. And then there's a bag for your lunch, yeah. right? And then on top of that... I have my guitar and my right. bag of podcast gear. Right, exactly. And the podcast gear is pretty darn heavy. The microphone <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm talking into right now is screwed on to a stand that weighs about eight pounds, right? And I don't want to come across as, as a whiny, weak little uh, person, but um, no, it's heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to carry it in here. And it was like, it's it's not insubstantial. No, it's not. Right. And, and as you saw when I was walking in, you know, I'm carrying all these things and I'd have no hands free. Right. And so I, I've, it's always precarious when I'm, when there, it's a day and where I'm, where I have like guitar classes and I'm podcasting someone. Right. And like, I have to backpack on my back, the computer bag on my torso uh, my lunchbox around my neck. Right. And then I carry in both hands the guitar and the right. podcast gear. Right. Right. And that, that makes it, um, that makes it super convenient to meet people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so, um, one of the things that I'm involved with on campus is, uh, we've recently set up for employees, right? For staff and for faculty. Um, these, uh, a sort of a set of, um, affinity groups. And the idea is whatever your particular interest is, um, you can join these affinity groups. It's a way of meeting people across campus and exchanging ideas. It's, uh, it's also a way of engaging employees. Um, so it's, it's new. We've just finished, oh gosh, I guess our first year. Um, and one of the affinity groups, um, that I expressed an interest in was, um, for disabilities. And sure enough, that's the one that had the most, um, interest. And so all the many things that I picked, that's the one that sort of got carried through. And because I'm, I'm a joiner, <laughs> I'm somebody who's, I'm somebody who volunteers and steps up for an awful lot of the stuff. I'm a co-chair for this group. And what I've been seeing more and more and more as my involvement in this group is just how difficult it is to get around this campus for anybody with a disability, with a physical disability. This is a perfect example of why sort of a universal approach to uh, moving around the campus is a great idea. I am willing to bet that you know where every single um, handicapped accessible door is because it had those nice big friendly buttons that you can push with your hip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or like I use my guitar and just. Yeah, know. right, right. Yeah. In which, yeah, if, if anybody from Hard is listening to this, you know, sorry, uh, take a deep breath, give yourself a moment. But um, yeah, so this is something that. Um, that is definitely a concern, and it's definitely something that we've been talking about on campus and definitely something that we're working towards. But even minor fixes, uh, changing a door so that it's the right width for somebody with a wheelchair to get through, mm-hmm. is a huge expense. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, 
as we build new buildings, you can see uh, this sort of universal design built into it. But it's it's really difficult to do. Um, also, we're seeing a lot of things about, uh, and I'm prattling on here, but I guess that's I guess that's kind of the reason for the podcast. Yeah, I'll continue to prattle. <laughs> um, the addition, uh, the renovation that was done to uh, our back for Barney um, is absolutely beautiful and it's fantastic and it's much more accommodating to people with physical disabilities. But the way that it was designed, if you walk up to the building where most of the renovations have been done, you see a really nice staircase that leads up to the doorway and that's considered an architectural feature, right? So that's something that they wanted to highlight when they were doing this building. It's like, oh, let's, we'll put glass in so you can see inside. We'll, uh, we'll make the atrium two stories tall to give the sense of space. And we'll put the stairs in front of it to give a sense of grandeur, right? And it goes back to, you know, ancient Egyptian time, not Egyptian, excuse me, uh, ancient Greek times. So you get this sort of majesty that goes along with antiquity. But there are um, no ramps. But there is a ramp. Right. This is this is the interesting. There is a ramp, but you have to get right up to it before you can actually see where it is. Oh, okay. So they did, in fact, put in considerations for um, accessibility, but they didn't. Number one, they didn't make it obvious, and in a sense, it was almost an afterthought. It mm-hmm. was it was along the lines of, oh my gosh, yes, we also have to make this handicap accessible. So. We'll make this ramp that starts way over at the side right. of the entrance, goes far over to the side of the building, and then hooks back around so that it can hit the top of the landing for the staircase. Uh-huh. And that's just the prevailing thought. And it, it's unfortunate, and it's something that we need to work on. I um, I was walking across campus um, yesterday. This is one of those situations where, like, you know, I cut it to the very last moment before – uh, having to go to our next meeting. So like I was in a rush, but the sidewalk that I was on blended in with a tour group of students. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let me just relax. Right. So now I'm standing in the middle, I'm standing and walking in the middle of a, of a group of students. And I'm like, this is an opportunity. So I just listened to the, to the chat that was taking place. I'm like, oh, what are people interested in? What are they looking at? And sure enough, uh, one of the students in the group said, I was going to recommend this place to my cousin. But she's in a wheelchair, and now there's no way that I would ever possibly say the University of Hartford is a place for you. So, all right, now we're losing money, hmm. right? And people people notice this. I, I never noticed. I noticed there were stairs. Yeah. I, I never noticed if there maybe this is just my perspective as someone who is able-bodied. I don't think about it. Uh, like, I, it didn't occur to me that, oh, I didn't see a ramp there. Yeah. Or if I did notice a ramp that I would be looking for it. I mean, I go into Auerbach semi-frequently to right. like visit the English department, uh, but never really on that side uh, because that is like most, that is the renovation for the Barney School of Business. And so I'm never, I'm never really on, on that particular half of the building. Sure. And so no, it never, I guess it never occurred to me. To, to, it, to, and it doesn't, it doesn't to an awful lot of able-bodied people until say you break your leg. Yeah. And heaven forbid. But it happens a lot. You twist your ankle. And we've oh, actually... I might, I, I might very well soon carry all this stuff. I, and, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. All right. All right. Since from now on, when I see you walking across the campus, I'm going to like, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and grab half this guy's stuff. <laughs> um, but this is... There are a couple of people in this affinity group who have recently like broken, broken a leg. And so they've realized just how difficult it is to get around 
campus. Mm -hmm. And then that caused them to think, oh my gosh, what's, what are other people facing? It's that certain, it's that, um, level, level of empathy, right? That goes along with it. Like there's civility, which mm -hmm. is, which is important. And everybody who's on campus has this baseline requirement for civility, but it's, in a sense, it's just acting as though you respect people, right? And saying hello and not screaming at people and not calling them nasty names. But underlying that is a sense of I understand the difficulties that you're going to, going through. And that's where like real kindness and consideration takes place. The challenge that I, I present to um, other staff members is often if you're walking around campus, do this. Do not step up or step down on any stair. Like if you come to a curb, go to the place where the curb is cut out so that you can go up that way. Right. And when you're in a building, look around for where the elevator is and then take the elevator up to the floor that you need to go to. Don't just head to the stairs. And you start to realize just how inconvenient it is compared to the able-bodied folks um, to get where you need to go to on campus. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and it's uh, it's totally enlightening. And there are there are things, you know, again, it's sort of uh it's sort of written into the script for able-bodied people who would never think about it um, otherwise. And again, it gets back to uh, architecture. If you take a look at uh, the front of this library where I work, um, uh, first, first and foremost, there are a few steps that lead up to where the main entrance is. Um, and in order to avoid those steps, you have to go all the way to either end of the U-shape of the Harry Jack Gray building. Even then, once you've gotten past that hurdle, when you walk, excuse me, when you come into the main entrance, mm -hmm. the first thing that you see is this majestic stone staircase. Mm -hmm. And again, it was designed to be an architectural feature. Look at the open space that we have. There's a command of the space. And we have this large architectural, in a sense, a sculpture, right? Yeah. Uh, brutalist sculpture. So it's supposed to be, you know, purposefully useful. But that's what you face the first moment that you walk in on campus and then the in the library the the elevator is kind of tucked away into the corner it is yeah and um originally the elevator was supposed to be sort of like a service yeah right so you know like you wouldn't use it unless you were like moving a cart of books around um during the renovation that we had a couple of years ago we sort of dug it out a bit to make it a little bit more useful mm. um but still it doesn't have that sort of presence it's sort of tucked away uh in the corner saying, in a sense, oh, yeah, well, I guess if you need that, you need to go over here. And again, it's out of your way. And even to get, again, going in through the main entrance of the library, in order to get to the elevator, there's another two or three steps on the other side of that staircase. Mm -hmm. So you go around the staircase, and then you present another three or four steps. When you get to that point, you realize that you have to double back and either go through the staff area Oh, yeah. Over on the right-hand side, in order to get <clears throat> to the ramp, yeah. Or you have to cut through Starbucks, yeah. Because when we did that renovation, we built a ramp in, yeah. But it's it's super inconvenient because, well, it's a Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and the uh, the entrances in aren't. I mean, they're not super wide. No, no, they're not. No, I I think they are. Uh, I think they meet the legal limit <laughs> as far as width. Is concerned, and that's yeah. a, that's an awful lot of the consideration that goes into this. Okay, what do we have to do in order to meet these minimum requirements? Rather than saying, you know, what's going to be universal, what's going to work for everybody? Yeah, yeah. I've, again, I never. I guess I've noted, like maybe, maybe the first time I was ever, 
I ever entered this library, I would have noticed, hey, there's a step here. Right. To get into the, the main floor of the library. Right. But then I literally just never think about it. Just, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It just, it just built into your periphery. I mean, yeah. you notice it in as much as you don't trip over it. Yeah. Most people. <laughs> Me occasionally. Still. Um, but it's the, the sort of barrier to access you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily notice. And um, even people who have broken their legs, the people who are on crutches, I find them moving up and down the stairs. You know, and it's, it's difficult, yeah. right? And there are an awful lot of students that carry, um, well, not quite what you carry, but at least um, a backpack and a bag for their computers. And to see them with two crutches in one hand mm. trying to navigate the stairs, I'm like, you know, we have an elevator? No, I couldn't see it. Oh, okay. Well, well yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is where it is. Oh, my God. If, if I broke my leg... <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the end of the world. It really I mean, with all this stuff I'm carrying, it's yeah. very likely to, it, it's likelier yeah. to happen. And then once I do, it's like, I can't carry any of my things. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, you know, talk about, uh, you know, these are, universal design means that you're creating a space that can be used by anybody, yeah. right? We don't have to make accommodations for anybody because anybody can use this. And it ties into the fact that you're carrying all this stuff around. Uh, wouldn't it be great if you had a locker that you could put your guitar yeah. in, but you're not necessarily a hard student. Yeah. So do you actually have the ability to put your guitar in that space? We're not really sure. This, I, I imagine like if um, I was talking to another, to a professor of mine who remembered when like a space, there was a space in Hilliard that was just all lockers. Right. And I imagine she said like, Oh, it just, it looked like a high school, a hall from a high school. Right. And I figure, I think, if um if they were to put lockers in, it would probably look like high school lockers and like not be able to fit a guitar in its case in there. Sure. So, sure. Uh, yeah, and look and feel is is something else as well. Um, there are things that you've noticed as a commuter, um, that stands out from you know the the experience of the the students who live on campus mm -hmm. experience, and not the least of which is duh, you're carrying your stuff all over the place. Um, but it doesn't figure into the minds of an awful lot of people, the fact that, oh, you're here for a certain amount of time. Maybe you have a morning class or something that you need to do in the morning, and then you have an afternoon class. It doesn't make necessarily any sense for you to go back home no. in order to take care of that stuff. Unless, like, I lived in West Hartford. Right, unless you lived in West Hartford. That's that's actually another problem that we've um, we found with students, right, especially uh, lower-income students, mm -hmm. um, where they can afford to come to the university, but they can't afford to live on campus. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really matter to them. Because they live close by. Because anyway. they live close by. The problem with this is, uh, and I'm thinking back to a student that um, that I advised uh, last year as part of the RISE program. This is before we uh, set up the Center for Student Success. Yeah, he lived he lived close by, um, and he would come for a morning class and then go home, and then he would come for his afternoon class and then go home. He saw exactly no one outside of his classroom experiences. So the people that he interacted, that he might have interacted with as far as a group project is concerned, that's the extent of his interaction with all the other students on campus. Mm -hmm. Because there's, no, there's nothing incidental that would keep him here. Yeah. Right. So um, the commuter student, the, the folks who um, are sort of in charge of making sure that commuter students are having a good time and they're prospering, have tried to set up events that would try to pull people onto campus 
But if you're sort of, um, if you're more of an introvert, yeah, you really rely on that sort of incidental contact with people because yeah. you're not necessarily going to go out and say, oh, they've got a gaming night. I'm going to go to the gaming night. There's, uh, there's pool tables set up at the bottom of GSU. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of fun. But if you're not the kind of person to like say, okay, I want to go and pick up a game with pool, then that's not necessarily something that you're going to do. Yeah. And I suppose for for people who don't live close by, like I, like me, right. who end up having to stay, like if I get here, I'm staying here until like the last, my last engagement of the day is done. And so for people who are very int- introverted and commute to the school from, from a ways away, the, I've, I've noticed they tend to go to the commuter lounge where hosted by the commuter student, student association, which I, I go to sometimes, but they, they do tend to just sit there and like wait until like the next class starts. It's, they, a, it's and, like a parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. And they sure they're there and they all notice, oh, they have these events going on, but then they're, you know, they're more or less just there to kill time until the next, their, their next engagement. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and it's it's difficult. And more to the point, the student that I was advising is no longer here. Um, he they ran into a couple of problems. Um, he was a really good high school student, but found when he got to college that college is not high school. Mm. Um, so you can you can prosper in high school, but when you get to college, it's the rules have completely changed. Um, you're, you're looking up at the ceiling because you knew that ac- the, the academics that you did in high school have translated well for for college, but We'll get to you in a minute because you're, you're different. You're a, you're a different you're a different example. Um, but for him, so he was struggling a little bit academically. The other thing is because he was completely unengaged with what was going on on the university. He thought, well, what, you know, what am I really doing? You know, I'm struggling in classes. I don't know anybody here. Mm. You know, I don't get to spend any time with my friends because I'm constantly coming here. I'm not making any friends here because I'm constantly going back home. And he eventually said, well, you know, I'm just going to go get a job and make some money. I can't really fault him yeah. for that. But in the meantime, he missed out on an education. Speaking of somebody who did drop out of college after his first year, it took me three years of um, uh, nasty retail experiences in order to finally decide, skip it. I'm going back. I'm going back to college. Yeah. Um, now, you, my friend... You're a, I believe that you're a different example because you had you went from high school to community college, right? Yeah. Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. T- so tell me the no. Okay. So I after high school, I enrolled in I enrolled at the University of Connecticut. Oh, okay. But there was I had a really rough time during the latter half of high school. Yeah. And like to the point, I, I, I nearly did not graduate. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like putting too much pressure on myself, engaging in too many obligations. Sure. And, and also I just did not, like, that, that didn't feel good. Like, like burnout or? Uh, burnout and like, I just was not mentally well. Sure. And like, even, even if you don't account for like the busyness of, of how I was during that time. I was just not mentally well. Right. And I was telling my parents, like, I, I would like to take, I would want to take a gap year because this is, I don't think this is going to work. Sure. I don't think it's going to work out and overruled. Right. And they weren't keen on that idea. No. Yeah. And then, you know, I, the immediate fall, I enrolled at the University of Connecticut 
um, at the campus, the satellite campus in my hometown, right. which has since closed. Oh, okay. And I didn't make it through the first semester. Mm. So, cause I was just, I didn't want to do anything. Sure. And so I dropped out and I was down like three grand worth of tuition. Oy. Yeah. Which, by the way, that campus was like a, just like a glorified community college. Right. It was literally just a building. Yeah. And it's right. You can, so that is not the college experience. No. <laughs> and like you, I, you know, just floundered around for like a year, maybe a year and a half, like having a job. And I eventually lost that job. And that, and then that made me kind of take inventory, regroup and think about what I really wanted to do. Right. Because in high school, um, I was putting so much pressure on myself, taking all these classes, doing too many things because I really wanted to bolster this idea that I wanted to become an academic in like hard sciences. Sure. Because I thought if I'm Asian, that makes sense. <laughs> and <laughs> All right. Let's roll. Let's roll with that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was taking like three or four AP classes at yeah. once and it's, doing, it's tough doing too many things. And right. I, I don't, I don't think I even had a license yet. Yeah. A driver's license. And I, I felt burnt out. I didn't want to do anything. You know, after the experience of, um, narrowly graduating high school, uh, enrolling in college when I didn't want to, right. dropping out, having a job, losing that job mm. made me think about what I really wanted to do. And so part of the reason why I didn't want to do anything is because I started playing music. Right. And now I was playing like shitty guitar during my senior year of high school. I was just sure. started. And so it wasn't as much as I loved music, it wouldn't make sense for me to like Right. You're not you're ready to chuck it all and become a rock star and, at that or point. Or enroll in music right. school. Right. And so but it's but it helped me realize that the only things that ever really mattered to me were art, arts and entertainment. Right. And so I figured, uh, what's the like thing that like I could learn to do that is remotely sensible? Sure. And I figured, oh, film. Right. I like films. I'll study to be a filmmaker. And so um, I figured, okay, so I'll have to go back to school. I'm going to go to community college and pick like the thing that's like the closest thing to like videography or filmmaking and build up like a curriculum, a G my GPA and whatever. Sure. Or at least establish one. Right. And then transfer to a place that has a film program. Right. And I eventually ended up here at Hartford. And I'm, I'm glad you did. So – I have an alert set up um, uh, on um, an application for the Internet of Things, and it browses through Reddit. And okay. anytime somebody mentions the University of Hartford, right, I get an email. Yeah, and um, that's how that's how I that's how I met you. Yeah, I was on r slash applying to college, right, sharing a story about how graduating from community college and. Looking for the next uh, a new institution to transfer to. Sure, sure. And um, if I remember correctly, you happen to mention the University of Hartford as the, your backup school. There were a few other a few other places I you mean, had in mind. But. Well, sort of. Okay. And also not because. So, if I wanted to study film, the the first institutions that came to mind were like Columbia, and, like Columbia. Yeah. I mean. I think more Columbia for like graduate studies. Sure. But okay. um, like University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. Oh, how could you say no? And like NYU. Right. Tisch School of the Arts. 
or like Emerson College. Right. And, you know, places like that, along with like state schools. And I think University of Harvard might have been the only private institution in state that I was considering. Right. Which had a film, which also had a film program. And as much as I would have liked to, you know, that's, that, that'd be cool. That does, that's, that's a dream of mine to study film at like USC. Sure. But even though those were on my list, I was actively applying to them. It was never a real list. I never considered them realistic choices. Sure. Because I'm a child of immigrants. We don't have money. Sure. We literally don't have money to send me to, to put me through school. Right. And so that means we certainly do not have money to put you through a soup. What's, what's to looks put me like through a super school, expensive yeah, school. To right. put me through a super expensive school and like have me live there because it's literally not where I live. Sure. You know, it's a, if I were to go to USC, it, it's literally the opposite end of the country. Right. And uh, from what I can tell, they don't really dole out money all too much. And right. I, you know, that's not, even though that would have been cool, it's something, well, I would have, been interested in sure. and it was never a real choice that i thought that could that could really happen right so. right but but you're here now yes I and am. it's been it's been oh god it's just a year since i met you right um year and a half year and a I, half i enrolled in the fall of 2018 2018 oh my gosh time flies anyways um so how do you feel as though you're doing now uh i'm doing okay yeah um I would, I would have to say you're doing better than okay. I uh, mean, I haven't seen your grades or anything. But. Uh, I'll tell you this, trade okay. so far. Stroud, good. Hey, congratulations. And, which is especially impressive given my curriculum because I told you I'm majoring in film. Right. I didn't tell you I'm also majoring in English. Yes. Which, right. Um, I'm also in the program for English to get certified to teach English. Oh, wow. So it's film, which is kind of its own major in itself. Sure. You know, it, it wouldn't be in the fine print on right. paper. And neither one is a give me, is a give me program, right? There's, there's a lot of work that goes there. Into both. There is like, yeah. even for the education certification, even if you excised all the things that are kind of, that could double as like gen eds. Sure. It's still like 45 credits worth of things to do. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. I'd have to say that you're doing pretty darn well. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you still working at um the office of marketing communication? They hired you on, right? No, they did not. Oh, they did not. No, oh, I, I didn't hear anything back. I need to go but, and talk to somebody. But um, on some level, I'm kind of. It might be a better idea to not be working during while class is in session, right? Just because because I have all three ish majors, right? And I'm also taking music classes on the side, right? So maybe work towards a music minor. So it's good to focus on academics when you're here on campus yeah. as opposed to – it'll give you one more yeah. thing to run to in yeah. between classes. And because I'm – the curriculum for – the curricul curricula for you know film program, right. English program, education certification, plus the music classes I'm taking, I'm overloading like every semester. To, so I thought I would take it easy myself the first semester – and by easy, I mean like only take a full load. <laughs> and I think right. I, I did fine. But then I'm like, now that I'm invested in the my music curriculum, good. I I think of it like when I'm registering for classes, I take a full load, eighteen credits worth of quote unquote normal classes. Right. To count towards my other programs. And then I add on 
like a credit or two of music. Yeah. Because for one, music is not that hard for me. Right. Like the first year I took a couple of theory courses and I'm such a nerd for theory. <laughs> I could even even though I didn't know how to read music coming into the first class, I'm 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 like I I study music theory independently by right. myself because I was you know, again, I'm such a nerd for the nuts and bolts of how music works. It's so interesting to me that I could it was not a question that I couldn't keep up. Sure. It was just I mean, I eventually learned how to read music and I could keep up. Right. And like I didn't really study because it's such music is so important to me. And it just learned, clicks with you. Yeah. Yeah. And the theory for it just made just makes sense. Sure. I suppose that's the leftover from my um days of trying to be a scientist. Sure. It, like it just made sense to me. It really and does. so it was I felt the theory courses were child's play. Right. Like except for the part where I had to read music. Yeah. So yeah, there is there's a sort of like it, it's one thing to sort of like write all this out. Yeah. Um because I, I knew all literally I knew theory. Right. Like rock solid. Right. But there was never time by myself spent looking at the page. Sure. The only thing missing from the gap in knowledge was the page. Right. So right. My first year of college was actually as a um studying music. And uh, same thing, you know, I would I would love to have become a composer or an arranger. And the music theory is what really clicked for me. Really? Um, because it's, in a sense, it's um, it's math. Kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Always and, add up to nine. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what's nine. Until you get to 12 tone and then, well, it's just another number. Yeah. Um, and uh, in a sense, it's also like Legos. I mean, I mentioned that it just sort of snaps in place, but... Um, making a transition from a first to a fourth to the fifth to the first. Um, okay, that's really basic. But then when you start talking about, um, uh, oh God, what do they call it when they reposition the chords? Inversions. Thank you. Yeah, inversions. You can still see the pattern and the way that it's supposed to shift and yeah. there are rules that go along with it. And if you understand this, you can hear it in your head even as you're scratching it down on a piece of paper. And mm -hmm. that's that's what it was for me. It was this natural affinity. But just like you, I took way too many classes. And I know you mentioned that you're taking like a one class, uh, a one credit music class. Well, it's not one credit worth of effort, is it? <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's closer to three well, credits worth of effort. At least here, the theory courses are two credits worth. They are. Okay. And give, I mean, I suppose for those theory classes, because I have such an affinity for theory. Sure. It, like I said, it felt like child's play. Right. And I didn't have to put too much effort in. Right. Because it just came naturally to me. Right. But then, like, for, th and, like, last semester I took um, a guitar course, Basic Guitar 2. Right. But it wasn't actually Basic Guitar because I was the only student. Oh. So <laughs> the pri private lesson number yeah, two. It, it basically yeah. became a private lesson, and we came up with a, a syllabus on the spot. Well, that's He's nice. like, what are you interested in? I'm like, uh, arranging things for solo guitar. Cool. We'll, we'll work on that. And so it's not, quote, unquote, difficult. But right. it was because private lessons don't, you, it's not... They can be difficult, but not in the same way if you're just in a class. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I definitely see that. But, I mean, like my first year, I took um, 21 credits my first semester and oh, I my second. It, and it was a full – it was full overload. Yeah. Um, and I just burned out. And I had, you know, undiagnosed uh, mental health issues. Hmm. You know, now getting back to disabilities, there's more than just the physical disabilities. There's, there's mental handicaps. Um, and I had oh, – God, I can't even believe – I'm old. I use the wrong terms. Um, 
but there are, there are mental health issues and they're, uh, in essence, invisible until there's, until there's a big problem. In yeah. which case it's, it's too late. Oh yeah. Um, we're not too late, but it's late. Um, so there's, there's other things that need to be, con- to be considered. After my first semester, I mean, I graduated, I got good grades through everything, not graduated. I, I did well throughout my first year of college, but at the end of it, it was just like, I'm seeing faces in the wallpaper. So <laughs> I, I had to drop out. Oh, yeah. And leaving college, I'm like, oh, I'm a failure. I, there's no way I can, I could do this. And I don't know what I was thinking about and, you know, majoring in music, what was, where was my head? And so having those three years off was kind of nice. And during that time, I'm like, okay, what is it that I want to do? And then let me figure out what it's going to take in order for me to do that, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, the same sort of thing that you did, where you said, these are the things that I'm interested in. How do I get to that goal? Yeah. So when you were in during your first year, where what's, what was the institution? It was UMass Lowell, University <clears throat> of Lowell at the time. Okay. You you were full on like majoring in what was a vocal performance? You? Yeah, it was a vocal major and um, taking classes in composition. Cool. Yeah. And as, a, as a vocal major, I wasn't so strong in reading music. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a saying, you know, what do you call that people that hang around with a band? It's Vocalist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. I, I, I would say I still don't know how to read music. How do you make a guitarist uh, run, run screaming out of the room, put sheet music in front of them? Yeah, really. It, yeah. Isn't, isn't tapped notation just the greatest thing ever? <laughs> Actually, I, I don't read tab. Really. Oh, you don't really? Th- you don't read tab either? Oh, I, um, oh, okay. When I first when I first started out, it was like, oh, look at on on the internet, look at the tab things. Sure. But then I felt like, but I don't want to read tab. Okay. And I keep hearing people say like reading music isn't reading actual music standard notation isn't hard. I'm like, I might I might just read that you know, like skip over tab. Sure. And and for the most part, I'm glad um, because I just I don't want to feel handicapped by speaking and reading tab right which um but so far it's it's it's, it's doing good. good but there i mean there are advantages that tab has because on a guitar you can play the same note like middle c in like six different places sure and so when you're just reading the staff it's like oh that's a note if this were a piano i know exactly where that note is right but on guitars like you have to on the fly if you're like sight reading something for the first time, you're like have to on the fly arrange it to make sure like, oh wait, this note, but then the next note is this one. So right. I have to find a way on this position so I can get to this note very quickly to net for the next beat or something. It's like right. you have to think about things like that. Yeah, you don't you don't want to have to jump seven frets in order to get no. to the right. Yeah, I have um I have a guitar at home that I have been promising myself I would learn how to how to play <laughs> for quite some time. So yeah, I, I tell you this, it's not hard. Is it? Okay. Or at least, um, I mean, there's a reason why guitar is one of the most popular instruments ever. Yeah. Any, literally anyone can learn the basic chords. Sure. Just, and it's not. And um, you can, you can do as well as George Thurgood. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's not exactly as involved as like learning piano. Sure. You, for the most part, it's just, hey, your fingers go here and you slap your hand through the strings. Right. So, you know, there's a reason why. You can find so many people who just noodle, who noodle on guitar right. and they only know the three chords, the three open chords they have in like G. And again, you can, you can do really well for yourself with just three chords. Yeah. And then if you want to stretch yourself, learn a song with as a fourth chord. Yeah. And then never play it again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I don't know. I mean, I think there, there's an understanding that you have that I think 
maybe not an awful lot of other people have. For me, a piano, this sort of linear progression of notes, right? Where's C? Oh, I know exactly where that is because I've got it memorized. Okay, well, where's E? Okay, well, I have to count up from that, but that's where it is. Yeah. Um, the idea that I have multiple choices for C on a guitar is a little bewildering. And perhaps if I if I put a little more effort into it, you know, eventually I get my brain to click into the right spot. Mm. But there's two things that you should never trust, right? If somebody walks up to you and says, all you got to do is <laughs> run. And the other thing is, oh, it's really easy. Let me show you how to do this. Uh, not so much. I mean, uh, something that something that I like to do, I'm not doing it this year because I needed a, I kind of needed a little break and what with the move and stuff, mm-hmm. is um, volunteering to uh, teach science to kids in an after school program. The problem is that when you walk up to somebody and you say, um, oh, it's really easy. Let me show you how to do this. If they don't get it when you show it, then they just blew something that was really easy. Yeah. And so now they walk away thinking they're an utter idiot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's a shame. And I see this all the time with kids where people walk up to them and, you know, oh, well, I know exactly how to do this. Well, well congratulations for you because you're not eight, <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> um, and secondly, yeah, it's easy for you because you have an affinity for it or because you've done it for a little while or yeah. because it just that's the way your mind works and it just clicked. For someone else, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be it can be tough, right? Like, you know, trying to and this is something that teaching kids has really helped me with in the rest of the world too, because much of what I do is explaining to other people how something works. Whether it's uh learning how a new system works and then showing them how to use that system or teaching somebody some of the principles that go along behind some of the, you know, the nitty gritty librarianship stuff, like how we do cataloging and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Being able to look at something and breaking it breaking it down into a way that you can teach in multiple different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Having to learn. So I, I do a le- one of the lessons that I do is on magnetism, mm-hmm. right? Magnets are cool. They're awesome, right? Anybody who's ever picked up a magnet is like, oh, this is amazing. Oh, this, this is fantastic. But to stop and say, how does this work? And saying clown posse has an answer for that. No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's not entirely true. Um, yeah, and they're vehement about it, too. I've listened to that song. Ooh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> but to sit down with a bunch of kids and say, this is why a magnet does the way that it does the things that it does and how it does it yeah. um, is really is very tough, especially when I consider that, you know, the reason why I started volunteering in the town that I was living in is because they scaled back the science requirements for younger kids, right? So up until they were in do, 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 six or maybe even seventh grade, there was no set science class, right? Mm. Some of it, if it got folded into something else like geography, it's fine, but there was no set science curriculum. There were sort of points that other teachers were supposed to bring, bring up, like seasons and the fact that the, that the earth spins around, you know, evolves around the sun. That gets folded into something else. But like atomic theory, nothing, right? Not until much later on. So I'm faced with a bunch of, with a bunch of kids saying, okay, all right, well, how does static electricity work? Oh, well, you know, electrons are stripped from one atom and they shift to another one. Like, it's like, who's Adam? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Let me back up a little. <laughs> so everything that you see is made out of really tiny things. Like how tiny? It's like really, really tiny. Like my dog? No. Although your dog is pretty tiny, much smaller than that. Yeah. And then just, and work up from that. And the magnetism thing, that took a long time 
to try and figure out how to teach them. And eventually um, I used uh, household fans mm -hmm. as an example. And the idea that you can get a bunch of fans to line up and push air through them in one direction and then uh, show how that attracts the air and how it attracts other things around it is the, um, the way that I went with. Um, insane clown posse has not gotten back to me yet. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not holding out much hope. <laughs> no, well. When you're trying to explain to someone the finer points of a of a of, of a science, if I do end up being an English teacher, if I if I do graduate with with a minor in music, I I was hoping if I could say finagle like teaching like a basic music theory course sure. to kids to high school yeah. kids or something like that. Because I, you know, I know theory like the back of my hand, right. and so I think I bet I I I haven't actually actively done it yet, but I feel like I, I think I'd be able to teach people theory, right? Right. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. Yeah, I think you would definitely be able to teach people theory, and I think you'd also be able to teach people theory with the kind of enthusiasm that pulls them into it. Yeah. Um And I I I hardly recommend uh, if you have if you have time. Um, no, let me scratch that. It has nothing to do with whether you have time or not. It's whether you have that level of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Because at, as I think you know, and a lot of people who are listening to this know, if you are enthusiastic about something, it's going to pull you into it. Oh, yeah. Right? The, the teaching science, I was enthusiastic about getting that, getting that across. Um, a friend of mine living in the same town was enthusiastic for music the same way that I was enthusiastic for science. And so he saw what I was doing and said, well, I can, you know, I can do the same thing. And he came up with the idea of a musical petting zoo. <laughs> yeah. And then he set up, all right. So the town has these town fairs a couple of times a year. Mm -hmm. And he just went and brought a bunch of his guitars and he's another guitarist and he's got a huge collection at home. Um, so he just brought them all, basses, guitars, a few like ukuleles. He went to some friends of his and said, you know, what have you got as far as musical instruments you don't mind people playing around with? brought them all there and then set up a little booth and said, this is a musical petting zoo. You don't need to be good at any of this stuff. It doesn't really matter. You can touch it. You can play with it. I can explain it, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And it was a way of getting people interested in music where they wouldn't necessarily think that, that it was. And when you look at things like guitars, right? I mean, how many people would take their guitar and hand it to a six-year-old? Yeah. All right. For those of you listening at home, yeah, Benson's eyebrows just shot up to his for to his forehead. So, and that's he was willing to do that, and it it paid off. Maybe not necessarily in the way that he had hoped, because it never it never really became institutionalized. Um, he never really his idea didn't get picked up by the same. Well, it sort of did. Didn't get picked up by the same organization that I worked with to teach kids after school. But I'll tell you. Um, our public library recently started a musical uh, instrument lending program. So mm. in the same sense, you can go and borrow a book. You can go and borrow a theremin. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Check it out. We've got your name. We've got your information. Take it home. Play around with it for a few weeks. Bring it back. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently borrowing a guitar. Oh, cool. So I'm involved in student government. And yeah. I, like, I just keep one in the office, in the student government office. To oh, nice. Play around with if I don't have my, if I don't bring my guitar that day. Yeah, so it's good to have a spare. Yeah, and now is, you have like two guitars. Um, I have a handful of guitars. No one, no that one that I ever, own. If you play guitar, no one ever says, "Yeah, I've got the one." At one point, <laughs> I had like seven. Yeah, and they're all acoustics. Yeah, 
Um, but right now I have three that are playable. And so, so those are like my main guitars and yeah. they're, I, I like to tell people it's one of each. It's a, an, a, like a steel string acoustic, right. an electric guitar and a classical guitar, right. which I happen to have with me. Uh, oh, that's, a, that's a classical. Okay. Yeah. All right. It could, I'm looking at the case right now and it, that's more of a, that's more fit for like a, a like a, a folk string, guitar. Yeah. Like a, a folk, folk guitar. guitar yeah. Steel string guitar. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would not have, looking at it, I would not have guessed that there was a, there was a classical in there. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, yeah. Cool. And it's, it's sort of, again, it gets back to this sort of this level of affinity and, and uh, having the things that you love, you know, ask a librarian how many books they have at home. They have a lot. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to give you the answer. <laughs> the answer is they have a lot, even though uh, when you <laughs> when you stop to think about it, you're a librarian. At least five days a week, you're someplace that has all the books you could ever possibly want, plus access to all the rest of them. Yeah. Why do you have so many at home? Because they're books. So yeah, I don't yeah. Know. yeah. I also have a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I actually at one point. Um, Although I, I suppose as an English major, I have a lot of books, a lot of which I have not read yet. Right. And <laughs> right. Yeah. It's your, um, do, so do you have, do you actually keep them on a bookshelf or are they stacked them next to your bed? Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Because, okay. So, um, I have a couple of bookcases in my room. Right. I have so many books. I put some in, they're in a bookcase like you normally would. Right. Go, spines out. Spines and, out. Right. And they're, um, you know, just go, uh, yeah. they're uh, all ver- vertic- vertically. Vertical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then. Because I have so many, I have, uh, it's like playing Tetris and <laughs> like for pretty much every single shelf for each of my, either of my bookcases, I end up like stacking books vertically. Sure. And then like but you pushing, found- pushing those back and then oh, putting yeah. another stack in front of that. Oh, wow. And then like putting, stacking other books on top of the ones that are just, um, Sure, because all the all the short paperbacks. If you line all those up, you yeah. can get you can get a longer hardcover to sit yeah. on top of it. And then putting other books in front of have their cover facing out, right? Uh, in front of the the ones that are, the other ones that are um, put in the bookcase normally, and right. push all the way to the back, right? And then like I have a TV on top one of the book <laughs> book bookcases. The other bookcase, I'm like, hmm, how do I do this? There are three shelves. Yeah. Like, okay, so do the thing again, like stack these vertically. These are small paperbacks, push them on the way back, put another stack in front of that, um, put these normally, but then like put our books in the space above them, put like this big ass, um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes collection and right. just put it cover facing out on here. Right. And I was like, but I'm running out of room. Yeah. Oh, wait, the top of the bookcase. Yeah, there you go. That counts as a shelf. Absolutely. And for the longest time. If you put them flat, you can get more there and you don't need bookends. Yeah. And last <laughs> summer or the summer before, I got, I got into like raiding all the libraries and thrift shops within like a 20 mile radius. Right. Like just getting all the books. Yeah. I don't want to be judgmental, but you have a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I ended up on the bookcase that doesn't have a TV on top of it. Right. I put like um, a bunch of one like layer of books, like. They look like if it was like a regular shelf and they're, sure. they're put like if they're in a shelf. But also, but then, actually, no. The, how did I do this? So some books. There'll be an illustration that goes along <laughs> with this podcast yeah. that you can all look at later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're just like 
they're put in vertically. They're not stacked, but they're not next to each other. There's a pocket of that in the middle of the, uh, on, on top of the bookcase, right? Right. And then I stack other books on either side vertically. Those <laughs> go up higher, way higher. Right. And then I put more books in the middle that are um, next to each other, like normally, right? On top of yeah. the other ones that are... <laughs> Yeah, all all I can so, think of, all I can think of now are evil suggestions. Yeah. Like, like you know, you could get a bunch more books in there if you just got rid of the TV, <laughs> or or you know, if you if you could stack them flat and you find just the right books so that they're even, yeah. you could put a board on top of that oh, and yeah. just stack a bunch more books yeah. on top of it. And the and it's it went up like a few feet and <laughs> and I ended up, I have an armoire right next to the bookcase. Sure. Of course, I knew like this is already too tall anyway. Right. So I started putting stacking books on top of my armoire. <laughs> Again, another evil suggestion. And all your clothes are going to live in the hamper anyway. And so. eventually, I noticed the top of the bookcase was bowing. Oh dear! Well, like, of course. Yeah. On New Year's Day, I decided to. Um, this past New Year's Day, I decided to clean out my armoire. Right. Because I wear like three things. Yeah. And. I need space for books. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so if you don't count like this stack of towels, everything I wear fits on a shelf. Cool. And with the with these like towels, it's like a shelf and a half now. Right. Okay. So I have another, there are three shelves and I have another shelf and a half to put books in now. And again, because, and it's going to be like stack all these, push them back, stack and put another stack in here. Right. And so I, um, now there's only one, layer of books on top of that bookcase and nice and we'll count that as success yeah yeah that's nice this and this i mean it speaks to it speaks to your level of priority yeah also i have a stack of books i have this like chair that's part of like a sofa set but it's just like a a one-seater right sure and i put it right next to my bed i also keep like tissues beside my bed sure the I push up this little stack of books right up um, next to the tissues, right. which I treat as like a nightstand. Yeah. Where like I put my TV remote and my glasses when I go to sleep. Right. On, on the stack I, of I think books. it's like this um, anthology of American short stories. Sure. Um, Probably by Norton. Yeah. Yeah. Or I don't think it was Norton though. Oh, okay. And Brave New World. Oh, right. Aldous, uh, Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. Um, it's, it's the edition with Brave New World and Brave New World Revisited. Oh, and then wow. Yeah, yeah. There's George Orwell's 1984 cool. and Animal Farm. Right. And I, I tend to sort things in terms of size. Right. And that's your current affairs deck. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> or not, no, I don't, I'm not reading. I, really, I literally just treat them as a nightstand. Oh, dear. Oh, all right. <laughs> so, and so, um, so from the bottom to the top, largest, smallest. So yeah. it's the, Anthology, Brave New World, uh, 1984, Animal Farm. And I treat Animal Farm as the top where I put my remote and my glasses. Right, right. For those of you who haven't read those books, um, I'll give you a quick synopsis. Bad things happen, they don't get better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that said, I mean, go I've ahead read and Animal them. Farm, but I was like back when I was in middle school or something. Sure. The story stays with you. Yeah. I mean, feel free to read it again. Yeah. But you, you got it. It's not, and that'll never, that'll never leave you. Same thing goes with uh, 1984 and with um, uh, Brave New World. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, all of which I read. <laughs> what a surprise. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hear it's, uh, as long as I'm coming up with more evil ideas, um, throw away your books when you're done with them. <laughs> Seriously. I read something. um, I'm a big fan of Lifehacker. 
Um, and I get their, I get a, an email feed of them from them all the time. I love the idea of people come up with a great idea to make your life a little bit better and then they share it. Right. And this is really what writing is all about. I get to that in a minute. But one of the ideas that, um, they came off the feed yesterday was, um, tear your larger books in half. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. If you're going to be carrying around a book, right? So you're, you've decided finally that you're going to read War and Peace. Yeah. Right. Leo Tolstoy. It's a hefty tome. Yeah. Right. Separate it. <laughs> Rip it in two. Absolutely. Force it, it into, into two volumes. Force it into, exactly. Force it into two volumes. Now you've got something that you can carry around. Or, and people are like, well, but it's a book. And it's like, yeah, but it, it's a book that you're going to read once and then move on with your life. Yeah. I was like, well, but it's still a book. And I'm like, okay, well, this suggestion is not for you. If you can't get past the fact that <laughs> yeah. books are sacred. Or get a, a digital version of War and Peace. Right. And again, there's, um, and this is, I'm sure, a conversation that you've at least had with yourself. All these things are available in electronic format someplace, but you have the paper volumes. Yeah. Because that's what, that's the affinity that you have for it. Either you have affinity for the book as an object or you have an affinity for the printed word on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. right? For me, it's actually easier to read it on a piece of paper, and it's more purposeful, yeah. right? If I'm sitting down with my phone because I'm reading a book on it, oh my gosh, there's a ton of other stuff on my phone, like Facebook. Yeah. So why would I do that? Yeah. But if I'm sitting down with a book, the book just, that's it. That's the words. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, hey, tear your book in half. And uh, let's go even, let's go worse than that. Um, as you're reading it, Tear out the pages that you read. <laughs> you'll never lose your. You'll never lose your place. I suppose. Although, if you're <laughs> if you're like a scholar of literature, yeah, I suppose that's not the best because your your life's work is reading and analyzing literature. You you have to like highlight and go back and write about this whatever book you have possibly. Or for an article or whatever. Yeah, possibly. Or you or you read it once. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or or even you know like, yes okay or. Or just listen to War and Peace on audiobook. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah, because who's got – well, we both have long commutes. So um, – but yeah, I mean the the other thing is there's always going to be another copy of War and Peace someplace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And this is your copy. Um, and a lot of times – all right, maybe you are the kind of soulless individual who will write in a book and use highlighter. I never want to see you and don't donate your <laughs> books. But if that's the case and you're doing it for just one particular assignment, throw it away. You're done. Uh, you can get another copy. Yeah. This is something that I've had to do. Uh, so I'm a librarian, right? And I've been a librarian now for, oh my gosh, well, 30 years, I suppose. Yeah, about then. And one of the first things that I had to realize when I started working in an actual library is the books are objects. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The information is important. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, the people who need the information are important. But the books themselves, they're just, they're just containers. Yeah. Right. And sometimes there are books and there are books that we have in our collection that are valuable in and of themselves. Even if nobody ever read the text inside of them, the book, the object has a value. We've got uh, we have a copy of the Nuremberg Chronicles mm -hmm. in our uh, rare book room that was printed in 1493. Mm -hmm. Right. So that book was uh, that hit that book hit the shelves while Columbus was still picking out drapes for the new world. Mm -hmm. That has value in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but most of the stuff that we have, aside from its content, has no value. And if that content is no longer useful, we don't need that thing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a couple of things that might happen. If we have some content that's available online, pitch the physical stuff 
And we had a renovation a couple of years ago. We found that um, for the journals that we've been collecting, we have a bunch of bound volumes of journals. They're very difficult to collect, right? So basically you get mailed a magazine mm-hmm. every single month or every single week or however it comes out. You keep every single one of them and then you send it off to a company and have it bound into a book, Yeah, right? So it took a year or two years just to assemble this thing. You paid somebody to put a cover onto it and then you hung on to it. Then we find out that it's available, that entire content is available online and mm-hmm. it's much easier for people to use. Oh, yeah. Do you keep the physical contact content? I think for posterity. You could. Or posterity. like in case like entirety of JSTOR just goes down. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, we need to rescan all the things again. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, you know the, um, uh, the, uh, the continuity plans of the U.S. government in cases like a nuclear war or something. The underground bunker that the president would move into is right next to where they keep the stuff for the JSTOR. <laughs> right. So you, you never have to worry about it. JSTOR star was something called. Yeah, because he won't touch them. Right. It, it's called a dark archive where they <laughs> took this stuff. They sealed it away in a place where the weather would never get to it. It would be available in perpetuity and then made the electronic stuff available to anybody yeah. who needed it. Right. Done. We don't need the physical volumes. And as a matter of fact, during the renovation, we found that um, the footprint of a library that we actually keep these books in was being reduced and being fairly radically reduced. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we need to make this place more inviting for people to sit in. Right. Because we want people to come to the library. We want to get them in here. We want to be able to get the information to them because it's important. And we also want to build the importance of the library. Oh, yeah. right? So it's about the user experience. Part of that user experience means these journals are available online. It's a lot easier for them to read it on there and to find it on there. We don't need the print volumes. 35,000 volumes were thrown away. Hmm. Excuse me, recycled. <laughs> no, they really were. They um they all went off to uh, a company to be uh, pulped and turned into blown in insulation. Mm. It's difficult for people to swallow this, right? But you have to remember, it's the information and the people who need the information that's a real importance, yeah. not the actual physical volume. Yeah. It's tough. There are other there are other examples, right? So uh, we have a we have a great nursing program here. Our collection has to support that nursing program. The same time that we're going through and doing the renovation, we realize we have to we have to come up with some shelf space. Go to the nursing section. Take all the stuff that's old. Get rid of it, right? Because not only is it taking up room that is not invaluable, it's got negative value. The right? information is obsolete. Absolutely, right. And would you want to have a nurse working on you who was operating on, you know, information about drugs that was 25 years old? Short answer, no. No. <laughs> Long answer, heck no. <laughs> no. So, so we, that was an opportunity to clear things out. Or even for like medical schools, like I feel like the information technologies adv- advances so quickly that by the time you're a med student and you're out of medical school, the information you learn is basically obsolete. It could be. Yeah, which, which is why there's a requirement to continue your education as you go along. Yeah. Um, the same thing happens with, with books, right? The amount of time that it takes in order to get all this information together, print it down on a piece of paper, right? Assemble all that paper, put a cover onto it, put it into a box, ship it out to where it needs to be and sell it to someone. Any information that was brand new at the time that it went into the book is now about a year old yeah. at best. It's difficult. I mean, it's very exciting 
the fact that um, all this information is available online. And when I first decided, I'm going to be a librarian because that's there's a growing market for it. They need people who, who can manage this information because there's going to be a ton of it and there's no other way that people can get to it other than coming to a library. Hmm. hmm. And then like 1993 rolled around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tim, uh, uh, Tim Lerner's, uh, oh God, um, Burns, can't remember his name. The, the clever spark who came up with the um, with HTML and the World Wide Web yeah. came around, and um, you know that was the beginning. And by the time I was working at Harvard, Google had launched a pro a project where they went from library to library. So it started with the more with the more massive ones like Chicago Public and Harvard and um, Library uh, of Congress. Uh, they didn't. There was some weird stuff about Library of Congress, but yeah. Um, they basically set up operations in this place where they would take over a room. They would set up their equipment secretly. You couldn't see what the equipment was. Okay. And then the librarians would wheel a, a truck full of books up to the door, knock. They'd pull it in, close the door, and then scan it all and then push the next truck out. And that's what the, the basis of the Google Book Project was. And they didn't want anybody to see the technology because it was it was that advanced. Basically, it was a scanner. It was a, it was a page scanner. You could like rapidly flip through the pages, and it would there was an algorithm that like flattened them out. But, but that was a deal, and everyone was freaking out about it. I was like, "Oh, the internet is going to take over, and you know we're we're going to lose our jobs, and so on and so forth." And I'm mm -hmm. like, "Yeah, I was a little concerned at a time." And then I stopped, and I thought, "Libraries have a six thousand year history. We will be here." Long after Google is gone, and when the next group comes along and says, "Oh, we need your content in order to do some project," we're like, "Yeah, okay, there it is." Mm. <laughs> so I'm not terribly concerned. And again, really, it is about uh, the information and the people who need it. Yeah. Yep. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. We're on, we're on a longer side of things right now. Oh, are we? Okay. All right. So uh, I I mean, we, we, we could keep going if you want. Do you have anything to do in the next? I mean, you, probably, you, you have to go to work at some point. They do pay me for that. <laughs> yeah, they do pay me for that. Um, Although, suppose at this very moment, you're being paid to podcast right now. I am. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, if you ever want to come back, there's a ton of other stuff that I can talk about. We, yeah. I barely touched on the fact that, uh, you know, I'm the chair of, of uh, staff council. Um, we reorganized it. So now staff council represents all the staff, 660 mm -hmm. some odd people on yeah. campus. Um, uh, as a result of building that up, I, I have regular, uh, communication with, um, with the president and other members of, uh, the administration. And we could talk about that at some point yeah. too. And yeah. I'm actually, I'm chuffed to find out that you are involved with, um, uh, SGA, um, because, um, student government association. association. Good. I got the, I got that acronym, yeah. right? Um, or that's an initialism, not an acronym. Well, my son was uh, my son was involved with the Gay Straight Alliance at school, and yeah. so I kept calling it SGA, and you know, <laughs> and, and then vice versa. But anyways, um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm psyched about that because we, we need to have more contact, right? Uh, staff council and student government, but that's maybe another podcast. I'll yeah. leave it up to you. I'd love to have you on later. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd be flattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, sometimes I have people on, and it gets really kind of deepish interviewee thing right to the point where like it feels like a one and done kind of thing yeah but um i don't know the ideally i would want it 
to just be conversations between the people, yes. not necessarily me interviewing them right. to the point where their entire podcast where we're just making each other laugh. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, we totally do that 20 <laughs> times. I would love to have someone on for 20 times. Yeah, really? Yeah. 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 It's, again, yeah, it's, it's fine. And I got to, I have to say, as long as it's still recording, I'm absolutely flattered that you'd ask and thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Cool. Okay. Okay.